hello and welcome to the antifada so we have some very nice bonuses available for the people who become patrons of our show uh our show relies on your support of course of course uh we have a discord community where you can talk to us and other people about uh politics history music anything you want basically we've got a bunch of different channels in there we also have a series of bonus episodes so we figured to show everybody what these bonuses are like and the benefits of membership at the antifada um we unlocked a bonus episode today so without further ado here is the first in a series of bonus episodes called history is a weapon uh and in this first one sean explains historical materialism enjoy Historical materialist readings, friends, fiends, and everybody in between. I am Sean KB, and this is the first in a new series where one of us antifadas does a deep dive into political theory, historical analysis, or whatever we feel didn't get enough attention in one of our main episodes. So welcome to my series, which we will be calling History is a Weapon. This is actually a continuation of a uh, free co-educational project I used to run at the base, which is a self-organized anarchist base in Brooklyn. Those classes were a great outlet for my history nerdity and uh, were very well attended, but the toll that heavy construction takes on the mind, the body, and the geist became too much for me at the time. Uh, But now we're back and I am super hyped for it. Before we begin, I'd like to announce a special offer. We've been working with board-certified evolutionary biologists and neuroscientists to develop our own brand of unique and powerful supplements, Dr. Antifada's Brain Balm. This nootropic is guaranteed to cure impotence, adenoidal diphtheria, chronic gorilla mind moths, and Russia derangement syndrome. Also, if your gray matter is not 75% foldier within one week, We will offer a full refund, no questions asked. To improve your love life and your mindset, email your order to our business partner, Mike Thernovich at thernovich.com, with the subject line, You are a racist, rapist piece of shit. Go crawl into a hole somewhere and die. And we'll promptly deliver Antifada Brain Balm straight to your door. So, let's get down to business. Today, I'll be explaining a term we throw around a bunch on the show, historical materialism. We realize we've never actually defined this term for our listeners. Some of you may be familiar with it already, but for those of you new to the game, we wanted to give you a little primer. We believe that this method of analysis, developed by Marx and Engels, and expanded upon by countless others, has an explanatory power that's crucial for attaining peak antifada mindset. But before we tackle histomat, Let's have a look at how not to do historical analysis. Famed political scientist Francis Fukuyama is back in the news. No, not because of the viral video you've seen of him blowing oxys at a Michigan strip club and yelling Saddam did 9-11 while Paul Wolfowitz charges lap dances to the American Enterprise Institute black card. Nope, Francis is back in the news because he's released a piping hot, brand spanking new big ideas book about identity and how the demand for recognition 
is the driving force behind world historical events. His thesis is about the centrality of human subjectivity in shaping the globe. His historical analysis is about the power of ideas. Now, as some of our fans may know, identity is not Fukuyama's first dive into the grand unifying theory racket. In 1989, Frenny Boy left a flaming paper bag full of horseshit on the doorstep of every craven neoliberal shill and vapid pundit, rang their doorbells, and ran off giggling to the nearest bank. His essay, The End of History, with a question mark, was so popular among the chattering classes that he polished it up into an expanded literary turd, his 1992 book, The End of History and the Last Man. The question mark was conspicuously dropped, and for seemingly good reason. His central thesis was that liberal capitalist democracy was the highest stage of human development. And, as British Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher famously said while gleefully crushing the testicles of a striking minor in a vice on live TV, there is no alternative. Now, that's often abbreviated by leftists uh, into T-I-N-A or TINA. With the Berlin Wall tumbling down right after his original essay was published, Fukuyama was basically the cool kid's philosopher of his day. It did not hurt that he's about eight inches taller than Ben Shapiro and didn't wait till marriage to throw it into that Tina thought. Like our homeboy Karl Marx before him, Fukuyama was inspired by the influential philosophy of George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who, in the early 19th century, wrote a really cool story about ghosts. These ghosts busted their way through history. Hegel's lectures on the philosophy of history was very influential and caused absolutely no Twitter drama because it had an all-male cast. The motor that turned the wheels of history in Hegel's worldview was called the Geist, which is German for spirit. This spirit jumped around the world, touching its spectral fingers on civilizations who hadn't yet perfected themselves through exorcism by babbling gibberish in strip mall megachurches. Geist represented for Hegel the mystical force that guided the world historical progress of humanity. Hegel's ghosts exercised this progress through a little thing called motherfucking dialectics. This mode of philosophic inquiry had its roots in the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who got his name because he was the hero who first discovered the clitoris. This discovery was lost for ages, but horny German philosophers like Hegel and Karl Marx resolved to find it again. Dialectics is grounded in the dynamic interplay between opposing forces, thesis and antithesis, that find their unity in synthesis. In Hegel's philosophy of history, the very political, economic, organizational, and cultural features that gave rise to, say, ancient China, at the same time held within those self-same features contradictory forces that would in turn become barriers that held back further development in that place and time. These contradictions could only be resolved by the ghost of history taking these dialectical opposites and unifying them. This new synthesis created another contradictory formation that would pop up as a higher civilizational form elsewhere. And so on and so forth, this geist would gather the progressive elements of one civilization, pack them in dialectical boxes, and schlep them westwards. 
Remember to always label your boxes when you move, folks. It's a good idea. Uh, with the successive rise and fall of each great civilization, human progress was being perfected across time and space. Now, it should come as no surprise that Hegel found the highest, indeed the perfect, expression of political, economic, and cultural development and freedom in civilizations like the United Kingdom and his homeland of the German Confederation of the 1820s. This wasn't merely Western chauvinism and best-of-all-possible-world shit dressed up in a spooky story. No, no, no. This was the end of history for these historical idealists. It would be a thousand-year Reich of freedom for Germany and humankind. What could possibly go wrong? So, jumping back to that ambitious Chad Fukuyama, it seemed in 1992 that Hegel's ghost guy was ripe for a resurrection. Had not the so-called communism of the USSR collapsed under its own contradictions? Had not the so-called West triumphed on the world historical stage? Notwithstanding the trillions of dollars spent on nukes and napalm and racism, hadn't the United States shown its social and political model to be the most resilient, benevolent, and freedomy of all human civilizations? Had not humanity rediscovered the clit? Like Hegel in the 1820s, Fukuyama just happened to come to the same conclusion that the political and economic system he lived under totally slayed, and freedom, liberty, and prosperity was the end of history. The final boss of socialism had been murked with a double-jump headshot. It was the success of bourgeois democracy, that ideal form of human governance, that forged what Fukuyama called the last man. The neoliberal subject, who leaves two-star Yelp reviews of the local Arby's, lives the homeowning, hard-working American dream, and occasionally gets internet famous for calling 911 when a black person tries to get on an escalator with their shoe untied. So, Hegel and Fukuyama, each in their own convoluted and self-serving ways, sees history as an evolutionary progress. There is a real basis for this belief, but each chalk this evolution up to the motive force of ideas, whether in ghostly or terrestrial form. There seems to be no alternative to this idealist vision of history. Today we're told there's a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West. That progress happens through the innovation of unique brain geniuses or great political orators, and that the free market of ideas is the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is good. If the end of history is, as Fukuyama and everybody else tells us, bourgeois democracy, then I would say we are in some deep trouble. The contradictions within our social system are resulting in imminent climate catastrophe, vast income and power inequalities, and the rise of right-wing authoritarian nationalism. At this rate, we'll probably just end up seeing the end of history as the end of human life on this planet. For those of us who want to change the world for the better, an idealist understanding of the world is worse than wrong, it is dangerous. In a sense, history has been weaponized against us. Fortunately, we have access to a method of analysis that flips this idealist bullshit on its head. Karl Marx, an early adopter of the Hegel mindset, was not content with sitting around while a disembodied force guided humanity along. In the 1840s, even with modern industrial capitalism in its infancy, Marx could see the massive social disruptions it was producing. 
His buddy and FinDom partner, Friedrich Engels, came to a similar conclusion, managing his dad's textile mill in England. Together, these two guys recognized that capitalism was revolutionizing not just technologies and goods, but also the ways in which human beings related to each other and to the things that they produced. And these changes were not going unnoticed by the working classes of Europe. Marx and Engels immersed themselves in a diverse and growing international movement against capitalism. Despite what you may have been taught, these two dudes did not invent communism. Communism, socialism, and anarchism were already terms in use by everyday people resisting a new economic system that was replacing peasant and artisan production with waged labor. Working people recognized and resisted the growing power of capital to dominate society through the market and through the state. Carl and Freddie soon identified two opposing forces, capital and the proletariat, both in deep relation to each other, but each with contradictory interests. So maybe history was and is the progressive evolution of unfolding contradictory forces, but what if the forces at work were worldly, that is to say material ones instead of spiritual ones? Maybe those worldly forces were based on the relationship that people had to what they produced for themselves and for society. Maybe that relationship could best be described as an unfolding class relationship between the mass of people who produce the stuff and the tiny group that claimed the surplus of society. Maybe this analysis of the world could explain why the episodic struggles of the working people were becoming focused into a mass movement. Maybe history itself is the unfolding process of humanity becoming conscious of its own universal interests. Maybe that interest is expressed in a class of people who have nothing to sell but their labor and nothing to lose but their chains. Marx and Engels basically said, yep, story checks out, and uh, they spent the rest of their days creating and employing this dialectical materialist analysis within a rapidly changing world uh, as they you know, verbally or physically intervened in struggles across the globe, across Europe, until they both died towards the end of the 19th century, but um, not before personally gulagging uh, about 389 million innocent kulaks just for the lulls. So, anyways, a materialist analysis doesn't discount ideas as such. It merely places them in their proper context. The ability of the human race to conceive of itself and its conditions of existence in the past, the present, and the future is what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. Consciousness is an essential factor of human existence that makes us who we are. But just as important as our cognitive abilities and self-awareness is the incontrovertible fact that humankind developed as social beings. We arose collectively out of necessity. This feature of human evolution has expressed itself ever since we came down from the trees and formed kinships, clans, and tribes. The innate sociality of our species is as deeply inscribed in our humanity as hierarchy is in lobsters. Weaker, slower, and certainly more goofy than other animals, we've banded together throughout the hundreds of thousands of years of our existence in order to transform nature and in the process transform ourselves. So there exists a duality between the individual with their ability to act in the world, to think, to dream, and to create, and the forms of mutual interaction that make up the collective human endeavor. 
The advent of every great civilization has had at its base particular ways of producing the essential material necessities of human life. And likewise, the particular social relationships that arise from that way of producing reflexively affect people's way of thinking about the world. This is why Marx could claim that he was keeping Hegel's dialectical method, but flipping it on its head. German idealism got totally fucking owned by historical materialism. Now, let's flesh out a bit how Histomat interprets world history. For 95% of our existence, human beings lived in relatively egalitarian nomadic tribes. Without the means to store food and without private property, there was no surplus of resources that could be captured by a group of people who could then claim it by some religious tomfoolery or by plain brute force. Eventually, though, we settled down into sedentary agriculture, and there was a means of subsistence above and beyond what was necessary for day-to-day -day life for the first time. This necessitated complex arrangements for the distribution of this social surplus. The first ruling classes came to power. The ways the ruling class ruled were different throughout history. There were societies where the producers gave tribute to a mean big boy and or dudes in weird robes. There were societies where it was totally cool to capture people from other tribes and own them and make them produce stuff while a bunch of pedos did TED Talks in cool marble buildings. There were societies where some Wyatt Coke-looking motherfucker in a stinky, moldy castle would offer the peasants a chance to till his land and give them protection against other fat guys in castles in exchange for a nice big chunk of the grain they made so there could be even more fat guy wars and some really bad shirts. These ways of producing and reproducing society rose and fell and rose and fell. Advancements in productive forces moved around like Hegel talked about but not in a linear way, and certainly not only in a westerly direction. Over thousands of years, there was progress in terms of techniques and technologies that could produce more output with less labor. And in every single case, a vast edifice of ideas arose because there had to be a way to justify the right of the big boy, the robe dude, the pederast, and the landlord to take the mass of society's stuff all for himself. We got religion, we got Athenian democracy, we got civilization versus barbarism shit, we got race science, uh, and now we have fucking Jordan Peterson. But no individual came down to a town square one day and said, hey guys, uh, I came up with a cool social formation for the distribution of surplus food and goods that involves me taking it from you while me and my buds go on mead benders and swing sharp metal things around. The ruling ideas of every epoch have always been the ideas of a ruling class. And those ideas arose as an explanation and a justification for a particular set of exploitative social relationships between the toilers of the earth and the fancy lads. Guess what? Capitalism may be much more complex than those other arrangements, but doesn't it seem like we still have a bunch of fancy lads running shit and a bunch of their flunkies running around talking shit? You probably hated history in school, and for pretty good reason. History as commonly presented is so fucking boring that even its own channel doesn't show it much anymore. Even when a mainstream documentary does weasel its way onto the boob tube, statistics show that about 78% of them are about Hitler, and the rest are about other more likable characters like the slave-owning Thomas Jefferson, 
or that great disruptor, Andrew Carnegie, who benevolently funded the construction of nice libraries for the working people, lucky enough not to get bayoneted by Carnegie's thugs as they tried to unionize his factories. So the educational system has us memorizing dates, presidents, and state capitals. In the U.S., it tells a story about how our founders were the good father you never had, because instead of forgetting your birthday every year, they gave Americans the good boy treats of liberty and freedom. In other countries, the story is different, of course, because of the unique history of that place, but the main thrust is the same. Instilling a sense of common history in a population is a great way to get them to distrust or hate people from other places. This is especially helpful when you want to, say, have a war or, I don't know, build a border wall. A common narrative for a people also fosters a sense of unity amongst the citizenry who might otherwise look out the window of their leaky shanty house up at the mansion on the hill and think, hey, maybe living within the arbitrary borders of this nation and under the same arbitrary laws doesn't necessarily mean we're all in this together? History, then, is not a neutral explanation of things that happened as they happened. It always comes from a standpoint based on the time, place, and conditions under which it was created. The idea-based great man version of history is dominant today because it is useful. It naturalizes hierarchy for a hierarchical world. It valorizes the individual, just like the everyday social relationships of capitalism, where each person is an island unto themselves. An economically-minded, self-seeking, rational actor who's in constant competition with all others for power, money, and resources. A self-contained utility maximizer within a brutal system that breaks down all bonds of family, community, and class solidarity. History, then, is wielded as a sometimes blunt but mostly subtle ideological instrument that takes vast social, political, and economic forces and boils them down to one big idea that changed everything or how Lincoln's big dick energy cucked slavery out of existence. It's almost as if this whole enterprise is designed to disguise the ways in which the world actually works and social change actually happens. It certainly has the effect of making collective action on the part of exploited and dominated people seem, if not impossible, than some old-fashioned thing people in funny hats did when humanity had serious issues to work out. That is to say, before history ended in about 1992. Our understanding of the world must be better than that. Historical materialism provides us a powerful method to uncover what's going on behind all this big idea and culture class bullshit. If we are interested in where ideas come from, and we should be, we must grapple with the condition under which those ideas are formed. To go into a complete historical analysis of how capitalism arose and how it functions, we'll have to wait for another episode, and we'll certainly do that. But suffice it to say that capitalism is a unique historical system just like all others. It is a powerful one that incentivizes a vast increase in the productive forces of society in unique ways. It has revolutionized human relationships and spread itself across the entire globe. It has eliminated much of the drudgery and poverty that have been the hallmarks of civilization since we first developed complex societies. 
And, like all other social systems, capitalism has created an edifice of ideas that rationalize and justify its existence. Because, just as in all others, the incredible wealth generated by capitalism has always been concentrated in the hands of a few and has given rise to a political system adequate to perpetuate and manage its gross inequalities. So powerful is capitalist ideology that Fukuyama's end of history book actually situating liberal democracy in history makes him a relatively rare case. Most of what we are given is Tina talk from economists, pundits, and politicians who strive to make our particular way of making things and producing human relations trans-historical. The trick is to make it seem as if capitalism always was and always will be. However, capitalism is only several hundred years old. Its experience has been a blip in the history of human civilization and a tiny speck in the history of human evolution. What makes historical materialism so dangerous is that it contextualizes our present moment. The ways that we collectively produce our material needs, the way that we dominate nature and are dominated by it, the management of human life through the violence and coercion of the state, and the domination of wage labor, money, and bosses over our everyday lives. The liberal democratic end of history that Fukuyama and his ilk present as given as the inevitable outgrowth of innate human nature and abstract ideals of freedom are falling away as more and more people are gaining consciousness that we simply cannot go on like this. Capitalism has done its work on the historical stage, but its unique contradictions are collapsing in on themselves. An end of history based on infinite growth on a finite planet and the increasing misery and immiseration of the masses will likely mean the end of the human experiment itself. But the material ground has been laid for a flowering of human freedom and collective abundance if only we can come together to take back what has been stolen from us and claim that vast social surplus that capital has sucked like a vampire from our living labor. We should not be taking our cues from washed-up, trust-fund brain geniuses, from crustacean scientists, or from liberal politicians. We can't even count on experiencing the transhumanist Joe Rogan DMT singularity. There are no gods intervening in our affairs. There are no ghosts guiding our progress. There's no one weird trick that capitalists hate to get us out of this mess. And another big idea from this year's TED Talk will not change the world. It is only through our common awareness that capitalism arose historically and will end, either which way, that we can dream of a better world. And it is only by understanding how capitalism exploits and dominates us all that we can rise up in common interest. That we can self-organize across race, gender, creed, nation, and continent to end the misery we hold in common. Because if capitalism has done anything, it has universalized our condition and made an internationalist outlook an absolute necessity. When we gain consciousness of our collective power, we have the world to win. History has been weaponized against us, but history in our hands is our weapon. Shit, you think I'm fine, my sister, I'm in the air, respect you, no honey.